You may be seated. Bibles tonight. There I am. Take your Bibles tonight and turn to Psalm 123. I looked at the schedule as we go down through spring, and a couple of the psalms in these songs of degrees will be preached by one by Wes, and one by Zach, and one by Edward. It'll kind of surround a time or a, a week, one particular week, Jessica and I will be gone from a Monday to a Friday, so they're going to be teaching it. But I looked at the calendar, and I realized I have more psalms than Sundays, uh, which is a good problem to have, uh, and so we just cleaned that up by taking two of them tonight. We're going to look at 123 and 124, so if you've been following along in the triads, meaning in the triplets of the psalms, they go tr- uh, trouble, trust, and triumph in these 15, five sets of triplets, or five sets of triads as they call it. And so tonight we'll be dealing with a trouble and the trust, and then next week we'll be looking at the triumph. I think it works very well together uh, as we look at these two psalms tonight. We'll just read Psalm 123, and when we come to in our second point this evening, 124, we'll read it uh, at that time this evening. Let's read this Psalm 123, we'll pray. And we'll jump right into the preaching tonight. The Bible says, Unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Father, help us tonight as we come to these two psalms together. Certainly, as we have read... The psalmist is in great distress. Just as he was earlier with the lying tongue, here it is the scorning contempt of those who hate him and who hate you. Help us tonight, Lord, to not just place ourselves in this psalm, but to find from this place of the psalm how we too can trust in you. All of us, Lord, have had seasons of our life where those in our life have not understood who we are or what we do. There may even be folks in here who they're thinking of an individual right now who has great contempt for them. Bless us, I pray, as we look at the trouble and then look at the trust that carries us through these times. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tonight, we're going to look at the trouble and trust of these two Psalms. The trouble facing the psalmist in 120, as you will recall, was both a deceitful and a destructive tongue. His trust, we read, was in God in Psalm 121, which led him to place to a place of triumph in the presence of God in Psalm 122. So tonight, as we come to these two psalms in our second triad, the trouble and the trust are put under the microscope for us. We begin in 123 with the contempt of the enemy. 
Make no mistake this evening, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a whole bunch of people in this world that don't understand what you believe. And equal to those who don't understand, there may be the same number of people who have outright contempt for what you believe and why you believe it at all. We live in an age in our country, we live in a time in America, a once godly nation, where those of us who hold to true traditional Christian values, conservative principles taken from the Word of God, we are held as the problem rather than the solution. And so when we come to this psalm, we find out it's no longer a lying, deceitful, and destructive tongue that is attacking King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, but rather it is Rechashab who is standing outside of the city, who's looking into the city and with great contempt wants to destroy them. And so the psalmist writes of his trouble in this Psalm 123. I think it's interesting in Psalm 121... Again, these are all in progression. These would have been sung by many of the returning refugees to Jerusalem who had come back from the scattered kingdoms. And as they would come and as they would go up to worship, they would sing these psalms. So they've already said, I will lift up my eyes in Psalm 121. Here in 123, even in the midst of the trouble, he's not forgotten the first level of trust, which is look to God. Because he even begins this troublesome psalm by saying, unto thee, lift up mine eyes. In other words, he's not going back and forgetting what led to success before. By the way, that's a good place for Christians to be. Take the successful moments of your life and the biblical application of those principles and build upon them. And so he does. But we find in verse number 2, He gives us a pattern for explanation. In other words, he's saying for us, I am looking, but it doesn't feel like all the time God is moving. You ever been there? Have you ever had that moment in your life where you think, man, I just desperately want God to work and I'm waiting and I'm watching and I'm looking and nothing. What happened? Why isn't he? The answer, by the way, is that because his pauses give us opportunity to trust. But here we find in verse number two, he is telling us how we ought to be anticipating his help in times of trouble. He said, as the eye of the servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eye of the maiden under the hand of her mistress, so our eye, when I'm looking up to him, my eye is waiting for the first hint of movement. You know, in this culture and in this day, if you were a king and you were seated upon your throne, as you were seated there, they would just lift a finger or they would lift their eyes or they would look towards something and the servants would immediately be moving because their eyes were on the king. And when the king moved, they were responding. And so what he's saying here is, God, I'm waiting on you to move because as soon as you move, I will respond. I will answer, I will work, I will do my part, but I need you to make the first movement. And so we come then to the mercy call in verse number three. Have mercy, O Lord, have mercy. It brings us to what the actual trouble is. It's not until we get to the end of verse three and all of verse four that we find exactly what's troubling this psalmist. He is troubled by the contempt of the enemy. 
The word contempt that is used here in the Hebrew is wonderfully ironic in our modern day. Do you know what the Hebrew word is? Booze. (laughs) It's a great word. Now, it means contempt. It doesn't mean what we think booze means. I have lots of jokes all week that I wanted to put into the sermon here and make a correlation to, but I chose not to. And so I only say this. The more booze that you have, the worse you feel. And so in that, it's very similar to contempt. (laughs) The more people have contempt for you, the worse you feel. Because mankind, our human soul, is built for affirmation. It doesn't mean we have to have it, but we are built for agreement and fellowship. And so when there are those that think they're better than us, when there are those who have contempt for us, when there are those who look down with disdain upon us, it troubles us. But thus is the state of the Christian, the follower of God. In the psychological world, a psychologist would define contempt, or they would say this, I should say, about contempt. The function of contempt, according to psychology today, is to signal a feeling of superiority, of not needing to accommodate or engage, and to assert power or status over another. That's what it means to have contempt for someone else. So we understand what is the struggle of the psalmist here. Someone thinks they're better than him. And they're looking down upon him for the silly views that he has. And again, if this is King Hezekiah, whom I believe it is, He certainly holed up in that little city of Jerusalem with the Assyrian army and the captain of the host outside, mocking them in their own language, certainly felt the full contempt of the enemy in his life. Contempt means to disrespect. It means to deride or to outright despise another. To have contempt for another is the feeling or attitude of regarding someone or something as inferior, base, or worthless. It is to scorn another individual. We live in a world for our, where our Christian beliefs are despised, disrespected, and held in derision. And so how do we deal with that? John Gottman does a lot of research on marital relations and marital relationships. He wrote a paper on contempt in relationships. Here's what he says, and I thought it was interesting. He says, when you communicate with contempt, the results can be cruel. Treating others with disrespect and mocking them with sarcasm and condescension are forms of contempt. So are hostile humor, name-calling, mimicking, and body language, such as eye-rolling and sneering. Now, the teenagers are wishing tonight that they were out with Pastor Zach because they're like, oh man, my mom and dad are hearing all of these and I'm going to be in trouble when I get home. Good. I was too when I was a kid. It's a bad idea for young people to think ever that they're better than someone. He goes on to say, in whatever form, contempt is poisonous to a relationship because it conveys disgust and superiority, especially when it comes to both moral and ethical grounds. Contempt, simply put, says, I'm better than you, and you are less than me. The psalmist here deals with three aspects of contempt as it manifests in our lives. The first is external contempt. External contempt. 
He says in verse number three, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. It means literally it's coming at us day and night. It's constant. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning. Now he shows us the external contempt of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. He's talking here about contempt that is coming towards us from outside of us. The contempt contempt here comes from those proud scorners who have put themselves at ease, making us the ones in trouble. Proverbs has much to say about this type of character. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 24 says, Proud and haughty scorner is his name, who dealeth in proud wrath. That's who we're dealing with in this psalm. You know anybody like that? I hope no one in here is like that. We get to a place often in our lives where we feel like or think that we're better than another person. And there's often times where people in their lives think they're better than us. By the way, you want to solve 80% of the problems in America? Eliminate contempt. If every person agreed that for one year they were going to live as an equal, we're all created equal. Our founding fathers understood that. We are all equal in our creation. Of course, in our outcomes, we're not all equal. But at the root of who we are, we're equal. By the way, the Bible teaches us that, everything, or that, that, that the foot of the cross, as one preacher said it, is level ground. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. There's no one that's a better sinner than another. Sinners go to hell. All of us, good and bad sinners. Proud and haughty. Scorner is his name. Who dealeth in proud wrath. The next proverb is in Proverbs 24 and verse 9, and it adds to this idea of the contempt that comes from without. The thought of foolishness is sin, and the scorner is an abomination to men. Now, let me tell you something about a scorner. A scorner is one who is contemptuous in all that he or she does. By the way, most teenagers, since you're in here tonight, most teenagers go through this at some point in their life. You don't have to, but most do. I once heard a person talk about their dad. And they said, you know, I thought my dad was the king of the world until I turned about 15. And then I thought he was the dumbest person in the world until I turned 25. And then I realized he was really the king of the world for the rest of my life. And if we have young people that are growing up and into ages and stages of life where they doubt the goodness of their own father, that's a problem because it speaks to contempt. I know better than you do. I've often told families, and I have been approached by families who have children who are scorners, and it is the hardest conversation I've ever had, and I've had it many times as a pastor. Pastor, what should I do with Johnny, or what should I do with Susie? Because they just think they're better than me. They just think that I should keep giving them everything. They just won't listen to the things that I tell them. And if they are truly scorners, I will say this. The Bible in Proverbs says, take the scorner and set him outside the camp, and contention goes with them. You say, well, you say that kind of cavalierly. Oh, no, I say it very carefully. I say it with deep sincerity. I'm glad for the short period of my life where I was not living for the Lord, where my mom and dad said, Kyle's not making wise choices, and while we love him, 
We are not going to endorse the choices he makes. I speak from experience on this area of external contempt. Sometimes the Psalms are so wonderful because they speak down to the core of who we are and they speak to the center of who we want to be as we drive towards it. To scorn means to deride or to boast so as to express utter contempt for the other. I know better than you. How dare you push that religion upon me? Moms and dads, especially if you have grown children, be consistent, be kind, be clear, and when you talk to one that's a scorner, be concise. That's the right way to handle them in those situations. Here, the psalmist is in trouble. There is external contempt that is being foisted upon him. There will always be people who mock what we believe. It's just the rite of passage of being a follower of Jesus Christ. There will always be those who hate what we're about. Jesus, our master, our leader, experienced contempt throughout his life and ministry. The most compelling passage of Scripture on that truth is found in Matthew chapter 13. Beginning in verse number 54, the Bible says, And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Now, if we stopped right there and there was no other part of the sentence, you might go, well, they must respect him. No, keep reading. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brother and brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? I mean, we see him every day in the market, right? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were, notice what it says, offended in him. Do you know what that means? It means they were contemptuous towards him. Who does this guy think he is? He's a son of a carpenter for crying out loud. There's nothing special about him. That's quite a high level of contempt to put towards the Son of God. But this is what they're doing. Jesus' response shows us the contempt that he was both feeling and understood at that moment. Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor. That's a double negative, which means a prophet is honored. Except save in his own country, and in his own house. In other words, if you express contempt towards me, I can't help you. If you think you're smarter than the Son of God, if you think you're smarter than me, there's no ability for me to help you or to intervene in your life. The Bible finishes by saying he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The ultimate statement on this idea of contempt is made by Solomon in Proverbs 18 and verse 3, where he says, When the wicked cometh, then cometh also contempt, and with ignominy reproach. When wicked cometh, then cometh contempt. We then understand that a, contempt, a spirit of contempt is first external in this psalm. It comes upon the one. They are exceedingly filled with it by those who are at ease and those who are proud. But secondly, we find there's two types of people that are listed here, and we find a fraternal contempt. It's not just external, but those who hate God and His people seem to have a confederacy. 
I mean, there's some people that hate us because of the way that we raise our kids. And there's some people that hate us because of the dogmatism that we have or the absolutes that we believe in. And there's others of us because of the things that we won't allow in their lives. But the point is, is no matter why they have contempt for us, they have a fraternal brotherhood. They're confederate. And, and the writer of the psalm here is talking about two groups. He's talking about those who are proud. Those are the ones outside the wall of the city, I believe. The second group are those who are at ease. These are people in the city that are like, man, I don't care what happens. But Hezekiah, you're a bozo for the way you're running things. And there's sometimes even within families, even within believers, even within those who are our friends, that they're at ease and they have contempt for you if you have to make a right decision. It's not just external contempt. There seems to be a fraternity of it. We should be very careful not to join in or to turn and give contempt back towards those who hold us in contempt. Boy, that's the hard part about the Christian life, isn't it? Oh, yeah? You think I'm dumb. Well, I think you're dumber. Good luck. It is not a good idea to answer contempt with contempt. It is never right to do wrong in order to do right. I think that was Dr. Bob Sr. that used to say that. Bob Jones Sr. said that. It's never, right to do, it's never right to do wrong in order to do right. And that's an absolute truth from the Word of God. Peter tells us about the end times and what the end of days will be like. And in the end of days, there seems to be a whole bunch of people that have contempt for God's people. That's why we know we're living really close to the end times. There's very few of us left. There's more that we should make as we go out and share the gospel, but there's very few of us left. Here's what he says in 2 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust of the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly, here's the ones that are really going to be punished according to Peter. This is what he writes. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh... In the lust of uncleanness, and notice what's the word, despise governments. That's the idea of contempt. Despise authority in their life. Who do you think you are? Do we not live in a day where nobody is allowed to be an authority on anything? This is the world we live in. And Peter said, this is what it's going to be like at the end. Friend, we're near the end. That's not a scary thing. That's a great thing. Unless you don't know Jesus. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. That is our present age. And just in case you weren't sure about it, in the next chapter, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, he says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. This is the idea of one who is scorning with contempt, walking after their own lust and saying, Where's the promise of his coming? I thought you guys said Jesus was coming back. Where's he at? Have you not heard that kind of contempt given to us? And the answer is, we hear it all the time if you live out your faith in the world. For since the fathers fell asleep, and these seem to be Jewish leaders that are saying this, speaking of the Jewish fathers, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. There's utter contempt in the statement made against Peter and what he believes. Back here in our psalm, the psalmist, for the psalmist, those who held him in contempt were confederate together. Those outside the city and those inside the city. 
The modern church is filled with a lot of people at ease who have contempt for the holy things of God's book. Christian, we ought to be careful when we hold in contempt people who choose to do things right by the Bible. Sometimes in church, we'll hear this said, perhaps, well, they're just a a goody two-shoes. Well, be careful. They might be a goody two-shoes because they're doing what the Bible says, and you should be a goody two-shoes as well. Don't hold them in derision. So there's external contempt. There's fraternal contempt. And some of you are smart enough. I've already put together. What is the last one? Internal contempt. The beginning of verse number four, he says what? Our soul. The end of verse three, he says, mercy and mercy, we are exceedingly filled. I'm overwhelmed with contempt. The worst contempt that I would argue that can settle into a man is often the contempt we hold in our own soul. And you say, contempt for others? No, I mean by that this phrase. I knew I should have done better. I should have done better. I'm just terrible. I can't do anything. There is a lie of the devil that often sits within us that keeps good Christians constantly in a state of defeat because we never live up to some arbitrary high and holy standard. May I suggest to you, forgiveness is of The Lord. This psalmist is struggling in the depths of his soul. He understands how we as human beings think. We often are our worst critic. Now, let me be careful. (laughs) By making this statement, teaching this, I'm not suggesting to you that we shouldn't hold our feet to the fire on spiritual matters. We can't just have a laissez-faire attitude of, well, no big deal. Cal said not to hold contempt against myself. What I'm saying is when you have failed and you have sought forgiveness from Almighty God and perhaps against someone that you have sinned against within the church or within the community, when you have sought forgiveness, you cannot live then in a state of contempt for your own mistake. He says, our soul is in contempt. You get the idea, if this is Hezekiah, that he's sitting here languishing over whether he should have made the decision to give in to the Assyrians or not. And the answer, according to God, was not. Well, if that's the right decision, that's the right decision. Stop beating yourself up. And so when you've made mistakes or when you've made decisions, in your own internal monologue, and we all have that, don't we? Someday in heaven... I don't think, by the way, some of you are terrified what I was about to say. I don't think your inner monologue is going to be played out for us in heaven. But I think someday in heaven, a lot of our inner monologue that we have with ourselves that, that we use to depress and suppress our spiritual growth, Jesus Christ is going to look at us and say, if you just trusted in the forgiveness I gave you, you would have been free. The worst prison we often build is the prison around ourselves because we cannot or will not forgive ourselves. This is the trouble. Oh, the external contempt is tough. The fraternal contempt is difficult because it seems like everybody's against us. But the internal contempt, that's the real problem because it's in the depths of our soul. The internal contempt is a loathing of our poor sinful state. When what, when what we should note is that we are sinners, forgiven, determined not to live in that miserable, sinful state anymore. 
I once was asked by someone that I was counseling, how do I get out of this? The best verse that I've ever found to help you get over your own personal contempt of who you are is Proverbs 22 and verse 4. Here's what it says. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Leave that verse up for a second and let's talk about it. Why is this the way over or past internal contempt? The answer is found in first, the humility. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He shall lift you up, the New Testament says. But it's in the respect of who God is that you understand there is riches. This speaks to literally physical and financial wealth or the ability for you to be stable. The second says honor. That is the emotional state of one that says, yes, I can still do those things which are good. And the third is life, which is a spiritual component. So he says here that physically, emotionally, and spiritually, if you will humble yourself respecting God, you can overcome any failure, any fault, and be forgiven. It's a great verse, because by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Stability comes through humility. It is a remembering that God's mercy is upon us. By the way, that's why the psalmist in his trouble is crying out for what? Mercy, mercy, he says. So the triad pivots from the trouble, just like we did in the first triad. And in Psalm 124, we move to trust. The psalmist pivots away from the internal, fraternal, and external contempt of our enemies to a trust in the comfort of the eternal one. Read with me in Psalm 124. It says, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side... Now may Israel say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, then they had swallowed us up quick. When their wrath was kindled against us, then the waters had overwhelmed us. The stream had gone over our soul. Then the proud waters had gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord, who hath not given us as a prey to their teeth. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we are escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. The psalmist is here trusting in the Lord. The name used here in both psalms is Lord, Yahweh. Self-existent or eternal one. What we're looking for then is not necessarily the contempt of man, but the comfort of the Lord. That's the solution. This is the trust. This is the thing that transports us from trouble to triumph, is recognizing the comfort that we have when even our own soul has contempt for us, that God loves us with an everlasting love. Hezekiah and Isaiah, if they're the ones compiling these psalms, choose a psalm here of David. And they place it into the trust portion of this triplet on contempt. There is no way for Hezekiah to know that God would deliver him from the contempt of the Assyrians or even from the contempt of those within the walls of his own city. 
So he turns with Isaiah's help to King David's trusting psalm, a psalm likely written after the victory over the Philistines in 2 Samuel chapter number 5. In that chapter, David has just seated on the throne. All of the adversaries, Abner and the others, have washed away after King Saul was killed at the end of 1 Samuel. David has ascended to the throne, and the first enemy that comes and attacks him is the Philistines. The Bible literally says that the Philistines came down to trouble. They set themselves in array in 2 Samuel 5 and verse 17 against King David. And as they do so, the Bible says David goes down into the hold. In other words, into the castle keep. He goes into the safest part of the city. And it is there that David writes this psalm. In trouble, he writes a psalm of trust. The Philistines had killed Saul, and now with their contempt for Israel, just like the contempt of the Assyrians seeking to destroy yet another enemy in their path, a fake, false god in their minds to the Assyrians, this little god of the Jews, they were going to eliminate this problem. They had great contempt. So the Philistines had contempt for David. By the way, think of David as the psalmist writing 124. He's the one that when he went down to the city at Ziklag that made himself look like a madman in front of the Philistines at one point. What a a crazy thought that later he would be the king in charge of the whole people. You talk about having contempt. Who are you? Who do you think you are, David? I remember when you were a nobody. I remember when you confederated with us and fought against King Saul. There was every reason for the Philistines to have contempt for David. But David says, I don't care what their thoughts towards me are. My thoughts are towards God. My comfort is drawn from him. This psalm answers the trouble of being held in contempt by the wicked around us by rather focusing us on the comfort of God over that contempt of man. Comfort from God overcomes seasons of contempt. Three simple reminders in this Psalm 124. First, God's comfort has intentional care. The first six verses are wonderful in the sense that King David seems to start talking in verse 1 and then realizes, hey, I need to go and get the people saying these words. If it had not been the Lord, and he stops and says, I need to go tell them. And the people of Israel say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, then they had swallowed us up quick. It's interesting, if you read down to come and come to verse number 6, the care that God gives to them is only seen beginning in verse number 6. Blessed be the Lord, who hath not given us as a prey to their teeth. Now, were the Philistines actually going to come and chew them up? I mean, physically, of course, the answer is no. I don't think they were cannibals. But, buddy, when you're taken in someone's ire, when someone has set their sights on trying to destroy you and they have great contempt for you and there's no way to appease or to pacify them, it really feels like they are gnashing their teeth upon you. When Jesus is crucified, one of the things that they do is the Bible says they gnash their teeth at him. They hate him. They have great contempt for him. But what we find is that God in his comfort, God in his intentional care, comes to remove us as the prey from their teeth. 
He proves himself. He spares us from their wicked and wretched mouths. But the second thing, if you look just briefly in verse 7, I think verse 7 teaches us a second greater point, but there is a hint of help in the intentional care. He says, Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we are escaped. Who broke the snare? I mean, I'm not asking too difficult of a question. It's more of a rhetorical question to think on. The answer is God did. You were placed in the snare. I've never seen an animal that's been taken in an actual trap, whatever the trap may be. And the trap has been sprung and effective where the animal figures out his way out of it. I mean, I guess there might be a video here or there on the Internet. But usually it takes somebody coming along. I don't suggest doing this to the bear in the bear trap. But someone coming along and springing the trap so that it can go free. In other words, the intentional care that the psalmist speaks of is that someone intervened for me. He saved me from their mouth, but he also saved me from their motive. He released me from their snare. Do you know what the snare is for our soul? When it comes to the area of content, it's our own pride. It's our own personal arrogance. Well, pastor, they can't say that against me. Can I tell you that the Bible says they'll say all manner of thing against you? You're not the boss of who can say what, when, and where, or why. God is. He's the only one that can free you from that snare. I'm not suggesting tonight the old saying is true, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. They hurt a lot. They can do significant damage, words. But God can free you from the pain and, the, and your own personal pride being wounded. He can free you from that snare. It's intentional care, let her be. It is an internal calm. I just don't like the way I'm being treated. I just don't like what's happening to me. He says his soul was escaped. Have you ever had, and I don't need a raise of hand, but just think in your own heart and mind. Have you ever had a time or a moment where you've really figured out God has made me free over this sin, this failure, this fault, this problem. He's made me free over this accusation or this contemptuous person. If you've ever had the moment where you are escaped, you understand the internal calm that comes to you when you realize, God's all I need. The only affirmation I truly need in this life is from God. I enjoy it immensely from my wife, but the only one I absolutely must have is the affirmation of Almighty God that, yes, you followed the book, you obeyed my word, and I have freed you from the contempt of man. Well, but they still have contempt. That's right. But your soul has escaped from that trap. What a blessing. What a truth. Again, if this is our friend old Hezekiah in his trouble, his soul was filled with contempt. Here it is set free from those burdens. It's why he came to this psalm of David as it was recorded and as it was sung within the children of Israel. And he says to Isaiah in Isaiah 38, we have recorded, let's compile these songs together about this liberation and let's deal with the lying tongue and deal with the contempt that comes upon us. How do we escape that? Trust in God's comfort. That's an intimate awareness of God. And that's what an intimate awareness of God will do for you. Finally this evening, the comfort from the eternal one 
comes in His infinite companionship, or Him being our infinite companion. Can I suggest to you, when in doubt, when in duress, when under depression, just go back and read Psalm 124 and verse 8. Just remember that He's the Creator, and that the Creator God cares for you. He says, our help is in the name of the Lord. God saves the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And what a hope. What a help. David is the writer. Hezekiah is the one who places it here, likely. David notes that the help that he needs comes from the Creator. That's pretty rock solid, my friend. Oh, you know the God that made the sun? Yeah, he'll help me get out of this feeling of contempt or in this reality of contempt. He'll help me. Why? Because he's the Creator. You cannot look up into the night sky. The, the, the beginnings were at our house last night, and as they were leaving, I walked outside. I love living out where there's no lights. Sometimes. Sometimes it's kind of creepy. But like most of the time, it's great. And last night, it was a clear sky, and I walked out, and I looked up. And they probably all looked at me like, what are you doing, you crazy old man? And the answer is, yes, I'm a crazy old man. I like looking up at the night sky. Because as I look at the stars and I look at the heavens, I'm reminded of many things, one of which is I'm very small. I'm really, I'm important to God, but in the scheme of life and all of humanity, I'm not that important. It keeps you very humble. The problem is a lot of people are looking around to see who they're better than, and they should always just look up and be reminded of how little of a man they actually are. The second thing it does is it reminds you that whatever trouble you're facing, and it may be intense. Here it's a situation of contempt. But by looking up, I can realize I don't care who despises me. I don't care who disrespects me. I don't care who is mocking and deriding me. I don't care who is scorning me because I know that God helps me. That's what it says right here. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Those who show contempt towards us are actually up against the creator of the universe. Good luck. Have fun with that. Right now, they may sound very important, and they may get on every network television program and tell us how much of a rube we are for trusting in God or believing in this theory. Good luck. You're welcome to show as much contempt towards us as you would like. We don't have contempt for you. We're supposed to have Compassion. The book of Jude says that we're to have compassion, saving them from the fire. Not contempt, compassion. By the way, when you say these things and really mean them, not just like, yeah, pastor said it, so I guess that's right. Meaning, I understand that this is the truth as the word of God reveals it to me. It gets a lot easier to be free from the trouble of contempt. As I've said many times, I think I said it probably a couple weeks ago when I was preaching the last time on the trouble of the deceitful tongue. Who cares what someone says about you 685 billion years from now? Well, but I got to live for the next five or 55. Okay. 
But, but I don't like that somebody doesn't like me. Just be glad that somebody in heaven loves you. That's your help. I hope as you go throughout your week, when fallen men try to scorn you in their pride, that you would never retaliate with contempt in return, but instead resort to the comfort that is found in Almighty God. As we noted, Jesus himself was held in contempt by his own family, and that may be the case for some of us in here. The more men hold your your beliefs and Christ's likeness in contempt, the more that you know you are living a life pleasing to God. This evening, we're going to turn our attention then to commune with God. What a great time to do that, to reflect on the fact that He redeemed us from our sinfulness. The thing that condemns our soul is no longer holding over us. It is the ultimate expression of comfort that Christ came to die for our sins. He died to redeem us. That is intentional care, as we noted tonight. His redemption covers us. That brings an internal calm to us. His covering created the relationship that is everlasting, that shows the infinite companionship that God wants to have with us. Everything this psalmist trusts in is what we remember and partake in tonight. Father, I pray that you'll help us as we come to a time of reflection.